Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to History and Technicolor. Um, and this is David. And this is Wolf. Uh, so, Wolf, it's your film this time. But before we do that, we were going to comment about Paths of Glory very briefly, just to say thank you very much, everybody, for your comments. We received a particularly nice message from Vince. We did. Very good one on the website, actually, uh, with information we didn't know about, about the fact of how Stanley had set things up tried to make it really, really realistic. And Vince, therefore, slightly scurrilously, I thought, was suggesting that we hadn't been perfect in our scoring. Un- unacceptable. Unacceptable. I was outraged. Vince, we loved your comment. Really, really interesting. Thanks to all of you who comment. Go and have a look at the website too, everybody, because some really interesting comments there as well. Anyway, so thank you for all, everybody for that. Over to you, Wolf. So the film that I've selected this week is The Fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, and why did you choose that movie, Wolf? I've selected this film because we haven't really done a Swords and Sandals movie. A sad lack. It has a fairly outstanding cast. Yep. Big names, big budget. And we haven't really done a Roman movie. It it covers a lot of ground that is relatively new to uh, our podcast, so I wanted to... uh, Venture into the unknown. Excellent. And can I compliment you for your choice? I mean, normally I wouldn't do that because normally your choices are a bit rubbish. Yes. But on this occasion, uh, excellent choice. Uh, Swords and Sandals movies. So just generally speaking, do you like Swords and Sandals movies? Do you like Cecil? Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille. I'm open to them, yeah. I, I don't think I've seen enough. And Open to them. What does that mean? Spartacus brings up um, Spartacus. terrible nightmares. No! Right, and excuse me, this this is now... They're usually incredibly long. This podcast is now terminated, and I'm leaving the building. Spartacus is a work of genius. Of course it's a work of genius. I thought we decided amongst ourselves that we weren't necessarily going to do Spartacus. I didn't say we were show. going to do okay. Spartacus on the show. I was just saying it. Anyway, so you kind of like... Mm, not right. I, I Let me come clean. I adore Swords and Sandal. As far as... As far as if life had it differently and I could have been Cecil B. DeMille's son. Actually, what was he like as a person? So scratch that. What? I love Swords and Sandals movies. I don't want to go over the top. I think they're great. So I started off when you okay. suggested it. I thought, great. Good news. I also thought this would be a really good comparison to Gladiator. Mm. I know we're not going to do that in this episode, but... It is that, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly the same period and all the rest of it. I saw some comment from somebody saying, huh, Gladiator was much better, did what this did in about 15 minutes. Well, if brevity is the key to filmmaking, we're all, we've all had it then, haven't we? 
Sorry, that was me being out. My, my only worry after this is that I've now done all the history, and while I've talked about all the history, that maybe we won't be able to do Gladiator in That's a future true. episode. Oh or it will be super easy hey, to do. why haven't we done Gladiator? Anyway, onwards. Okay. Call the Roman Empire. So this film is made in 1964, and it charts the moment in Roman history that triggered the beginning of the end and uh, Rome's fall from grace. What else happened in 1964 that was brilliant? I don't know. I was born. Carry on. Wow. 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 Carry on. I'm going to edit that out. That's an outrage. Keep going. Okay. David, you wanted to uh, pose a question to us. Why is Roman history so appealing? Why is Roman history, Wolf, so fascinating to us? We were having a chat about this at the recent conference I went to. In, in New York? In New York. So good, actually, that they named it twice, apparently. Did not realise that. Um and we talked, one of the sessions was why are we all so obsessed, why are there so many podcasts on ancient Rome? Why do you think we're so obsessed by the history of ancient Rome? Part of me thinks that it's because, for the same reason we like Game of Thrones, we want all the, the, the sex, the yeah, violence, yeah. the debauchery, mm. we want to hear about the manipulations within the Senate, corruption, wars... They fought everybody and everything yeah. for so many hundreds of years. So it, you could be interested in the Romans purely because of their conflict with the Carthaginians or because of their connection um, with Persia or their operations in Britain or in Germany. You can Absolutely. kind of pick and choose. And the stories are just amazing and the histories we have of them. So have you read the best historical novel I ever written? I Claudius, you, you got a question right. Well done. Fantastic. Uh, no. What? Anyway, read it. I recommend it heartily to you. It's very good. How, well, how did you know it was the best historical because book? Because we, we've then? talked about have we? the best historical book of all time in multiple episodes. Oh, have we? Okay. And it's always the same answer. It's always the same answer. Right, I'm forgetting. Anyway, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the reasons we're fascinated that it's just such a pageant that everything is in there in the history. But it's also fundamental to our culture, isn't it? Yeah. So. The Renaissance, which is so fundamental to the way we think and, and live, was all about the rediscovery of the classics. Uh, so it holds everything for us. It has got all the, the sex, the politics, but it's got, the, it's got the philosophy, it's got the buildings, the The foundations of government. Foundations of government, everything is in there. And the fact that this... And it's so exceptional within the context of its time. I mean, as we'll discuss later, of course, people don't like this exceptionalism thing anymore that, oh, superior civilizations and inferior ones and all the rest of it is a concept uh, we now don't like very much. But nonetheless, it was such an extraordinary difference to what had come before and what came after, that, or particularly what came after, that um, why did it fall? Why did it crumble into the dust? And we see in our own modern politics, I think, in the British Empire, in America, we see connections. Uh, and indeed, you know, the American Constitution, you can claim, heavily influenced by, uh, by Rome. And we wonder whether that ancient history is going to come and visit itself on us in the present, I think. And I think you're going to bring this up again later. I think I might do that. What's your favourite period of Roman history or Roman figure? Uh, I like the bit just before... I get a bit bored of the um, the Julius Caesar and the transformation into the empire bit, which is a lot a lot of people talk about, because Caesar is such an amazing figure. I love the stuff with Marius and Sulla, the, the, brothers, the brothers Gracchi. That is a fascinating period. I also love the very early history, which is basically legendary stuff. You know, Cincinnatus saving the people, going back to his plough... Um, so if you want to read a fantastic book on the Rome, on, on Rome, you need go no further than Livy, who is both an original source and a superb writer and a really pretty decent historian to boot. So go and re read Livy. It's not all of it survived, but a lot of it has. It's a great read. Excellent. Anyway. So, a little bit of information about this film. It was made in 1964. It was directed by Anthony Mann, who... I did a little bit of research on to improve my knowledge on him. He made a number of successful westerns and film noirs where he was generally known for his, his dark vision. He had quite a lot of influence and I've seen a lot of really positive discussion and criticism, uh, sorry, really positive praise of him from the likes of Jean-Luc Godard, Martin Scorsese. A lot of Scorsese's work is, 
influenced by the work that he was doing in the 40s and the 50s. And he took the film noir and a lot of the tropes of that genre and put them into the westerns of the 50s Mm. before he started making his historical epics in the 60s, where he's probably most famous for getting fired from Spartacus and then making El Cid prior to making this. So he made El Cid as well? Yes. Well, that's a great movie. It's interesting you mentioned westerns, because it seemed to me, sorry, interrupting, it seemed to me at various points in the battle scenes, there were bits which felt like a western. You had people jumping on people as though it was jumping on, I don't know, Ben Murphy or whatever it was, you know. Anyway. Well, he made he made seven films with James Stewart. Right, did he? And uh, Winchester 73, I think six of them westerns, and one of them was the Glenn Miller story. He also made The Heroes of Telmark. Well. Ah, right, okay, superb. Yeah, so so I think now yeah. we see that you're a little bit familiar with him. Yeah. He made El Cid with the extravagant super producer Samuel Bronston, who also made this film, who, interestingly, is Leon Trotsky's nephew. No. You're joking. Okay. Bronston was famous for building massive productions in Spain, where he made huge savings on labour and other costs. Oh. He was uh, questionable with his money. And after this film, he became bankrupt due to the scale of it and the box office failures and various money issues. He was then criminally investigated after declaring bankruptcy. I believe he was charged but later let go. And some of the charges that were used against him and the laws that were clarified were later used by Bill Clinton when he was impeached. Is that right? Good during his presidency. Right. Just to give you some idea, this guy's linked to, right. to Bill Clinton and Leon Trotsky. <laughs> and in the middle, he's just making these massive movies in Spain, throwing all the money he's got in the world at them. It's not about political pedigree, is it? Um, and the, the film follows. So Spartacus is 1960, El Cid is 63, Ben Hur's in there as well. The general consensus about this film is that maybe by the time it comes out, the audiences are slightly right. tired of the huge extravagant epics that they've been getting for the last few years. The story opens in 180 AD with Marcus Aurelius as the emperor. He's locked in the Marcomannic Wars versus the Barbarians and is camped along the Danube. He is attempting to squash this Roman foe once and for all because they've been harassing them for quite some time. He's considering if his son Commodus should become the next emperor and he says that he wants to make uh, the general Livius uh, emperor instead. Conspirators murder Marcus before he can announce Livius is going to become the new emperor, so Commodus inherits the throne. The film follows Livius and Lucilla, which is Commodus' sister, as they attempt to preserve the work and vision of Marcus. And uh, so they rescue the German people, they try and fight against all the changes he's making in Rome, and uh, ultimately they, uh, they ride their army, or lead their army, into the city to try and take it back and defeat this evil maniac. At least that's the story of the film. Indeed. David, what did you think about the film? And had you seen it before? Uh, I'm pretty sure I had seen it before, but a very, very long time ago, so only remembered flashes of it. And what did I think of the film? I thought it had all the fantastic things about Swords and Sandals movies that I love. The big scores, the... Sophia Loren, you know, how can you not like a movie with Sophia Loren in it? Uh, What's your favourite Sophia Loren movie? movie. Or performance? El Cid. She is in El Cid, isn't she? Yes, she is, with Charlton. Because they didn't get on, apparently. She and Charlton, which I did not know, which came as a bit of a blow, actually. But anyway, um, so, and and the magnificent sets and the big themes and, you know, the scale and ambition of it, I loved. And I loved the recreation of the Roman world. It was a little bit long, and we knew that it was long. I knew it was but three hours, you know, a bit of editing, I don't think would have done it any harm whatsoever. Um, And there were some other specific criticisms, I'd say. But basically, it was great, yeah. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Maybe I don't think it's quite as great, but I definitely agree in terms of it's got all the right ingredients in there, and for huge sections of it, it's really quite enjoyable. Not as great as... El Cid? El Cid, yeah, not as great as El Cid. But El Cid I, it's is not as good as Ben Hur. One of the classics. It's not as good as Ben Hur, I agree. It's kind of top of the second division, isn't it? Ben Hur has a really good narrative and days, an obviously. excellent lead. Yeah. And it, although it's long, it feels like it's always quite tight as this, it's happening. I agree. This feels a little bit like a history lesson 
in the sense that the tale, the message, is every bit as important as the story. And that's not to say that they don't have human bits. So I quite like the bit when they're welcoming all the the provincial governors at the beginning in order to introduce the Roman world to you. And uh, there's a, an interaction between Marcus Aurelius and <laughs> That's Timonides, actually a really good bit. Which is actually a nice little bit, because you can imagine, you know, don't patronise me, I'm the emperor. Just putting the guy in his place, even though he's a friend, it's just a nice little touch. It's a little moment as well that reminds me that although it's trying to give us a history lesson, it also wants to be entertaining. Yeah. Um, so it goes for the comedy, which you don't really get after that point. It's no. the only time you don't it get is, any yeah. comedy no. other than this one bit where Timonides, which is James Mason, yeah. says the wrong name of the, yes. the, the provincial visitor. governor. Yeah. So Marcus corrects him, but then he forgets the name of the next person and Timonides leaves him hanging. Yes. So he's having to welcome him and he's there clicking yes. his... And he lets him hang for a moment so that he has to ask. Yes, absolutely. It's quite, it's quite neat. And of course, James Mason... I mean, we haven't mentioned the cast, of course. So this is what I was going to come yeah. to. How did you feel about the acting? The acting was great. I mean, I, going back, actually, going back very quickly, the thing about the film is that it's quite portentous, isn't it? You know, that's the thing about it. it takes itself very seriously, and that there aren't many laughs on it. But that aside, and it's a bit the same with the acting, that it's they are acting, you know, it's this is not method... <laughs> I don't know what the difference is about, but do you, you know what I mean? It's, um, they're taking themselves very seriously. If serious it was method thing. acting, they would have tried to live as if they were Roman. Right. So they would, somebody would have gone off into the middle of right. nowhere, put on all their, all their armour, like trekked four days to get to the scene and then been like really sunburnt and ill and then delivered their scene. Right, indeed. Okay. It's the kind of thing that method acts. So right. um, Daniel Day-Lewis... Lived in the woods for like six months, ready for last. Did the last Mohicans? Yep, learning how to like use all their weapons, everything, or yeah, various things like that. Right. Okay. So you, this feels like good old traditional acting, and they're all very serious. Um, classic Hollywood. Yeah, classic Hollywood stuff. But no, I mean, not bad for that. For all that, you know what you're getting, and I know that I love that, and therefore that's not a problem. Nonetheless. It doesn't really... You never forget that you're watching a Hollywood movie. No. It does have some really interesting things going uh-huh. on in it, though, which I think we'll come to. So we said James Mason. Wonderful. Yeah, I love James Mason. He's brilliant, isn't he? He was particularly interesting in this film because usually he's kind of villainous. Is he? He's been Brutus before, hasn't he? I don't know. I need to check that, but he struck me as a kind of a Brutus figure in this film, I living for the ideals of the the finer virtues of the Roman Empire, a representative of that. So as Timonides, even though Greek, actually, he's, he's the good guy, isn't he? He's the guy who represents the principled future. And sometimes James Mason, I thought he'd acted that as Brutus, but I'll have to check that. OK, back to the acting. OK. I think this is the first thing that we should address. What did you think about Stephen Boyd as Livius? Right, so I was all prepared to be cross that he wasn't Charlton. So, um, actually, although he's a little bit wooden, I think he's fine. He does all the craggy stuff, but I didn't think he was as flexible or as... Again, you knew you were watching a chap acting this character. It could have been better, but it wasn't terrible. Yeah, he's serviceable. Mm. But he's not particularly inspiring. No. And I definitely don't feel I'm connected to his character at all. And when you think about... Honestly, it's two degrees of acting compared to him or Charlton. Yeah. I mean, I happen to love Charlton. But the... Um, and the thing is, it never... But I think that's the thing about the movie, isn't it? That it never lets you get out quite of this history lesson. That you're going to go from A to B. And you never... You don't have this strong central character to pick up on and really get behind. Do you feel that Livius is the main character? Or do you feel like he's just one of a few characters? Yeah. It's kind of like, what do they call an assembly cut? Is that some expression? I.e. that you've got a bunch of people and you're following an ensemble uh, and you're following all of them and none of them can you really get behind. Okay, yeah. You know, you would get behind Sophia. Uh, What's her... Who is she? Lucilla. Lucilla. You would get behind Lucilla, but she's not often enough leading it that she can't really carry the movie. 
And there's huge sections where she's kept to the side exactly. because of the history. Yeah. So there are some, although it changes history, there are some divergences yeah. where it sticks to it unless you lose a, a character for a yeah. while. You'd ha- she'd ha- they'd have to have taken a very different approach for her to be. He the generally, though, through. in all the criticism I've read, yeah. Stephen Boyd is usually mentioned as one of the worst things about the yes. film. Uh, I also really did not like Anthony Quayle. How can you not like Anthony? Is that, I think that's a law against that. I like Anthony Quayle. <laughs> I hated in him movie. in this movie. Did he? Why is that? I, I don't know what it was. I didn't. His character is. His I've character got some issues Anthony with his character, yeah. which come up later on. And in fairness, he's not in the film very much. Yeah. But for some reason, I found him really smug and annoying. He was meant to be, wasn't he? I guess. He was meant to be, oh, we're these gladiators, the Commodus loves us, we're going to be better than voice. you lot. I don't know why, I just felt... When I think about Quayle, he usually... In Lawrence of Arabia, for example, yeah. he perfectly fits the role that he's playing. Yeah. In this film, I just don't, it doesn't work for right. me. Cool. James Mason, as we said, is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I can say a bad word about him. Underused. Underused, yeah. But... As in, when I watch this film, it's hard for me to... Well, I understand, based on her screen presence exactly why she was such a huge star, but I don't think the film gives her the work that is required to help me understand the impact that she really had at the time. No. Okay. Although, you know, obviously she's incredible. Yes, I mean, I think the history of Lucilla is... She was... is probably underplayed. I mean, at the time, she was a figure... We're very well known in Rome. She was very overtly political. She had quite a lot of influence... So, in actual fact, the film does recreate her accurately when she's part of the rebellion against Com- Commodus. Yeah. And oh, they like- probably don't play up enough the fact that she had quite a lot of political networks within Rome throughout. Well, I guess we'll mention this now. I don't think the romance works particularly well. No. And I think it does her a disservice to have her always supporting Livius. Yes. Especially when he doesn't quite work as the main character. Yeah. Yes, true. That it would might have been more powerful if she was a little bit more independent. Having said that, you know, I think she had, as ever, she has enormous screen presence. She just, you know, whenever she's on the on the screen for me, she pulls the camera and the action to her. You know, I thought she was great. Yeah, Alec Guinness. What did you think? Alec Guinness. It's the curly uh, wig thing. You know, he is George Smiley, and whenever he's not George Smiley or Charles the First. He annoys me. Doesn't annoy me. How could Alec Guinness annoy me? Because I love him. I did think you might be annoyed by him in this film. But he is, on the other hand, he is a good Marcus Aurelius, you know, the philosopher emperor emperor that everybody loves, and therefore, in a sense, he's a good choice. But he just doesn't look good with curly hair. He is... George Smiley would never have had curly hair. Okay, so you heard that, everyone. Alec Guinness, pretty good, but never give him a curly wig. (laughs) Last and... uh, What do you think of Alec? I thought he was... I thought he was good, but I really felt like something about him pulled me out of the film. Right. Like I was watching Alec Guinness separate from the rest of them. Yeah. I don't know why. And then I guess reading about how he rewrote all the lines to his oh, did role he? because he he said the script was just um, utter rubbish to like That's read. Right. So he was on the plane and I think he was rewriting his own... The, I think the script writer was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm rewriting my lines for when I speak them. <laughs> That's excellent, isn't it? That's Which but... obviously is notoriously what he said about Star Wars. Is it? He said the dialogue was utter tripe, as you would say. <laughs> and I, I don't think he particularly cared for being in the right. film. I think he was doing it for the money. Right. And obviously he died before it became like a massive phenomenon. So I think his work as Obi-Wan, he was rolling his eyes most of the time. Right. Um, <laughs> as you would do, yeah. if, honestly. And lastly, and I think this is really important, Christopher Plummer is so good in this film. It's very, very creepy, isn't he? Very creepy. I was bowled over. It's got to be said that Joaquin Phoenix was also extremely good as Commodus in Gladiator. Yes. I mean, they both get that real creepy, oh, hang on, this guy looks normal, but he's actually as mad as a March Hare. You know, he gets that beautifully. And it's even more impressive because Christopher Plummer at the time is this, like, Young, dashing. Yes. I, I'm just going to keep saying different um, words for attractive um, over and over. <laughs> man, and he, we think about him as the Captain Von Trapp. Yes. 
And then he's in this movie and he is despicable. Yeah. With such charisma, this like, and this smile on his face. Oh, it's haunting. It's a good combination, isn't it? He do, he does a really really good job, and I think he grounds the film. Without him, it really would be too hard to watch. Okay, just to quickly wrap up on the film, the sets and the locations were absolutely incredible. Brilliant. The colours of Rome, the darkness of the Germanic um, battlefields, the the. I honestly couldn't fathom how many extras there were in oh, all of these scenes. Yeah, just incredible. Also, I was petrified. There were so many horses running through crowds of people, and they were real people and real horses, and the the carts and everything moving around. It reminded me of um, the chariot race in, in Ben Hur. Yeah. The idea that you you know that there's like life and death on the brink, and there's this like maniacal super producer just like yelling yeah. action, and there's people like there's fire everywhere. It's absolutely crazy. Supposedly as well, the construction of the Roman Forum is one of the largest outdoor film sets ever created. Yeah, it, it was absolutely remarkable. How did you think about the costumes? The costumes, I'm afraid I did not go into the detail of whether they were accurate or not. I'm pretty sure the Persians weren't. But, I, I mean, the trouble is, I love them, them from the yeah, okay, yeah, I love them because I love all that. You're going to give me the most gorgeous representation of what people we think people might have looked. So it's like the horned helmets on Vikings thing. Yes, I know the Vikings didn't have horned helmets, but I really like them when they've got horned helmets. So, I'm sorry, I loved it. And if I did yep. look at some shields. They had some interesting shields at one stage with some little holes in them, and I looked them up on the interweb to see whether they existed or not, and they didn't. It's just a slightly odd thing to add in. Anyway, and the blah, lo- blah, blah, blah. I love them. Great. What did you think of the costumes? There were some times where I thought Livius's costume in particular looked like one of those ones you buy for a child from really? the shop for, like, £10. <laughs> but... I was kind of like, it's okay, it's it's just the time, and the, it's just everything's a bit clean. Right, the arm everything's is always very a bit clean. Sh- it's like shiny. Oh, there's no attempt at realism, isn't there? But that's, you don't watch a Swords and Sandals movie for realism, do you? No, but the Germanic stuff is a little bit more... The Germanic stuff is a little bit laughable, actually, because I want to make somebody look like a barbarian. What am I going to do? Put lots of fur on them. Put lots of fur and lots of beard. Oh, okay. Well, okay, anyway, let's move on. Um, my question for you is, do you think that the fight scenes... In 1964, yeah. would have felt to audiences then like the fight scenes in Gladiator felt to us in 2001. I thought the fight scenes were the worst thing about the movie, actually. Which I would agree with, but I'm trying to gauge if you think in 64 they would have been good. No. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> simple, simple. Because it's not necessary that you had this sort of Western thing going on with, with people jumping out from behind rocks as though they were in Arizona or something. It's the fact that they were formless. You never knew. Yeah. So I kept on comparing it in my mind with Gladiator, that amazing first scene when they're fighting the Germans and unleash hell and the sound of the German calling across on the other side. and Just amazing. And you know what's going to happen. You know what the setup is and you see the progress of the battle. You understand it, whether it's accurate or not. I, you know. Whereas in this, there's people running around hitting each other. Oh, and and you, the- there's no tactics going on and they're not acting like disciplined Romans and that's their, the thing that, you know, it's all just chaos. And they're always turning on each other or changing allegiances, and you never know who's who yeah. until after the fight someone tells you something in a dialogue yeah. exchange I mean, and you're the, like, oh, okay. The last battle was particularly bad, I think, because in the middle of the battle, the general runs off to save his girlfriend. I don't think he'd do that. And also, you didn't know who was coming from where and what they were doing. And I think you meant to be able to tell by the colours of their uniforms, yeah. but no, not really good. hard. Really not good. But that was the only thing I really, when I sat there, that was the only time where I really thought, actually, this is just not very good. Yeah, and when you're that far into the film and it's so long, you yeah. really want the fight scene to kind of hurry up. Okay, so I think we're going to move on to some of the history and that will help us clarify some of our thoughts about the film. Okay, sure. I mean, I'd say a couple more things about the film okay. in terms of the set. One of the things that I thought was really good was the way the sets worked. So when he went inside, the sets were amazing, weren't they? Yep. incredibly ornate. But the nice thing about that was that it picked up on an old trope I think you quite often get, and I think the same in Gladiator, where all that luxury, all that colour, all that intricacy leads you into the feeling this is a corrupt world, where when you're outside and you've got the forum and you've got the big monolithic buildings, it's all about solidity and permanence and organisation and power, you know. So it kind of helped pull you into these evil, corrupt world of Commodus and the true, virtuous world of, world of Livius outside. I thought the sets were amazing for that. It's not just that they were big. Uh, 
And from... It seems to genuinely recreate the period and the time. Yeah, well, in terms of accuracy, they say, certainly what I've read is that it's as accurate a representation of the forum as you could possibly get. It, it really does look incredible. I've never seen anything I want to say. Okay, so you had come up with uh, something that you wanted to talk about when we go on to historical accuracy. Right. So, what did you want to say about the historiography of this film? Okay, yes, yeah, so the historiography is a fascinating topic all of its own, the way we've reinterpreted the fall of Rome in the context of what's happening in society at the time, because hate it or loathe it, that's what happens with history. We like to think it's objective and scientific. It never used to be. Thomas More would never have recognised the idea of objective scientific history. History was there to teach a lesson. So we now see it as normal that it's objective and scientific, but actually the way we, history is changed throughout the ages, according to society it reflects, but anyway... And that's the same with the historiography of the fall of the Roman Empire. Why did this incredibly advanced civilization? why did it fall? And it starts off with Edward Gibbon. Have you come across Edward Gibbon? I've come across him in almost everything I've looked at regarding right. this period of time. It's amazing, His isn't it? His key text that everybody has worked from since. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it, that he... You cannot talk about Rome without talking about Edward Gibbon. So he wrote in the late 18th century, he wrote this over about 12 years, uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, 1776 to 1788. And he builds this theme that Rome's fall was set by the second century, that all the, all the cards, I mean, and all the rest of the fall of the Roman Empire until the fall of, the, of Rome in the West in seven, 476 was all just inevitably happening it just took a while but everything was set by the second century descends into chaos the culprit as far as he was concerned was the death of civic virtues civic virtues where everything is your personal and your family is subjugated to the role of the state and the requirements of the state so he, what he sees is a rise of materialism of wealth of corruption helped on actually by christianity which helped sap the old vir- those old virtues of the Republic. So he wrote, the enemies of Rome were in her bosom, the tyrants and the soldiers. So all these corrupt emperors who ruled Rome for their own benefit, the soldiers who at one stage sell off Rome. So you know at the end of the movie when you have the captain of the Praetorian Guard saying, who will offer me the most money for Rome? That didn't actually happen at the end of Commodus, but it did happen at the end of the next emperor, who was Pertinax. Okay, yeah. So he's, Antony Mann is picking up from that. The army will control things rather than it being the will of the people, and so on. So he builds this story. My father was absolutely all over Gibbon. You know, he would talk to me constantly about, you know, civic virtues and so on. Early 20th century, there came a theory which rather echoed Gibbon. It had lots of similarities, but it basically said it's the imperial system itself which was the problem. That right from the start, the idea of an empire was a bad idea. itself a sign of decay, a bloated system that was based on an economy of plunder and looting. So this old idea that the empire had to grow in order to survive. And actually it's referenced in the movie that unless you've got somewhere to loot and plunder... You can't, the whole system doesn't work, you can't reward people. And so, as soon as it starts, stops growing, it's had it, it's gonna fall because there's no more plunder. Which presents a very odd view of the Roman, Roman economy, suggesting that it's all just based on plunder and it's all external, it's not about a complicated internal trade, which we know not to be the case. And it's a very sophisticated economy indeed. Then there are others, so you get another theory which was about military decline. So we begin to move away then from all this political, religious and great man stuff. And history generally moves away from that. You know, it's all about the people and these, these individuals and all about politics and constitutions. And everybody got really cross with that. And they did generally in history that says, oh, let's not stop it. It's all about processes. Um, it's all about the importance of individual lives, the population. Why are we looking at all these great men? So there's a, a conscious and slightly messianic rejection of those that old idea of there being higher civilizations, So people get very cross about the idea of there being barbarians. Well, that's just a different society. They're not less advanced. So the revisionists begin to emphasize continuity over discontinuity as well. So they, rather than us seeing traditional history being the collapse of this empire, they see a change. And so 
it begins to turn into something completely different. The empire didn't collapse at all. It just transformed into something else. And that, you know, all this idea of people dying and economies being ruined and people living miserable lives and fire and destruction, that's all rubbish. It's just childish nonsense, you know. As I read an article, it had a very funny line in it by this academic called Jean Rutenberg, who wrote a good article about this. Rome did not fall, it experienced stirrings. Barbarians did not invade and conquer. Foreign people participated with the Romans in the stirrings. You know, this idea that it's, oh, we're all being far too dramatic about this. This affects English history as well, actually. So the changing way we look at the Anglo-Saxon settlement now has become very much about, oh, no, 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 no. There was no collapse. There were no people coming over. No, no, no. People just decided to call themselves the English. Having said, having been uh, slightly derogatory and insulting about it, obviously I'm not worthy to pick up the crumbs from under this historian's table, but the point is anyway that there is a lot of justice in that. Actually, when you look at individual history, you see the continuity far more strongly than discontinuity. People stay in the same places, they farm in the same way, they often live in the, report into an administrative structure in the same region. Much less changes than these big sweeping stories of history would suggest. So somewhere along the line, there's, there's something in the middle, which is probably what makes sense. More recently, there are a couple of authors, Peter Heather, Brian Ward Perkins, who produce a sort of synthesis. So they make the point that the, this idea that the decline of the Roman Empire is set by the end of the second century is just bonkers. You know, the Roman Empire is not doomed from the time of the death of Marcus Aurelius. What it does is very actively change. So Diocletian changes the system. Constantine changes the system. Their argument is that actually Rome grew in a very, very favourable international situation where the enemies they had to face were generally disorganised and that the empire grows in this international situation where the Persian Empire, for example, is pretty weak and disorganised. What happens by the 5th century is that that changes. In the East, there is a genuine competitor in the 4th century from the, Pers from the Parthians, I think it is, no, Persia, Shapur, who kills Valerian, actually, and uses them as a footstool, which is unusual for Roman emperors. There's growing wealth amongst Germanic tribes, therefore they are able to afford greater and better armed household warriors. There are constant civil wars internally. Taxation, therefore, is required to fight all these wars and internal wars. That destroys tax and trade in the tax base, reducing manufacturing. You get this return to subsistence agriculture because people can't get the goods they need, therefore they go and produce their own. And rather than involving themselves a lot in trade, they produce enough for themselves to live. So that Rome was kind of overwhelmed by a, a threat from outside, by an overwhelming series of invasions which they could just no longer cope with. Isn't the part of the argument about this period of time, though, that the other stuff that he does, like um, taxing and removing all of the resources from the poorer, weaker sections of the empire to fund yes. Rome debilitates and demoralises yes. and weakens Rome's uh, governance over huge swathes of their land. Yeah. So those people are choosing that they want to revolt and they don't believe in the system anymore, while Christianity is also growing. That's really interesting. Yes, I think that's absolutely part of it. And that brings us on neatly onto Antony Mann and his interpretations. The message here is that it's Timonides who has the future of Rome in his hands when he brings the barbarians into the empire and makes them part of the empire. And actually that's a fairly normal mechanism within Rome. They've done that several times. And Commodus rejects that. And that's the message of the film as far as man is concerned, and indeed that ties in with Gibbons, that the corruption, the self-interest, destroys the empire's opportunity to change. So Marcus Aurelius is very much about this idea of incorporating these people within the empire. When all the governors come up, what Antony Mann is doing is saying, look how diverse the Roman Empire is. It's not just Rome anymore, it's all these different peoples really making that point strongly. And the message of the movie is uh, that it is the failure to incorporate these people that destroys Rome. Yeah, so they're arguing for progression, they're yes. arguing for open-mindedness. Absolutely. They're arguing for, for you to adapt and not maintain this one set tradition that you continue to adhere to yes. over time. You welcome all these people in, you support them yes. and you will grow and new ideas will come forth. And that moral 
virtue and values of humanity will maintain the civilization. Yes. If you're corrupt and debauched, then you will fall. Absolutely. So he kind of follows Gibbon with, with his own twist, I think. I had a look at Antony Manor's approach to this, and here I've got a quote from him about how accurate you need to be. Because what's clear is that Antony Mann thinks very carefully about historical accuracy and the trade-off between accuracy and drama and the message he wants to make. So would you agree that he is using history to teach a specific lesson to audiences now? Absolutely. So he, he writes, inaccuracies from an historical point of view are not important. The most important thing is you get a feeling of the history. So we know he's going to play with history. Nonetheless, we know from things that happen in the movies that he's read the histories. We know he's read Dio. We know he's read Tacitus because of some things that happen. So, for example, the idea of Marcus Aurelius's death by conspirators securing the succession is in the Historia Augustus. The way he's poisoned, you know, with the apple being yeah. cut in half... That is a story which is based on another event in Marcus Aurelius's life. I think it's where Marcus Aurelius actually has somebody killed by giving a poisoned half of a pig to somebody. So we know... <laughs> I'm picturing yeah. a blind man cutting a pig in half, making sure... Sh- with- that squealing. <laughs> with this really small knife. Yeah. And then Sorry, here- just give me a few minutes. Yeah, and then I'll just eat this non-poisoned half of a pig in front of you. And <laughs> they cook it for... Anyway. Um, so, yes, so we can see that... Anthony Mann has clearly read very carefully and deeply about the history. Nonetheless, he's going to play around it. So there is no Livius, for example. He doesn't exist. Um, Lucilla does exist, but she's also already a widow of Lucius Verus, who's a, an associate of Mar- co-emperor with Marcus Aurelius earlier. She did marry a, a Roman Syrian, not an Armenian. She was involved in a plot to remove Commodus. And as we said earlier, you know, she could have made more of her role as a political power broker in Rome. He had her murdered, didn't he? Commodus murdered Lucilla. No, she goes at the end with... No, in, in history. After she, after she tries to carry out the coup, doesn't he have her murdered? I do not know the answer to that question. I, I, thought, I thought he had Shall her murdered. Yes, apparently he did. Apparently he sent a centurion to execute her on the Isle of Capri, as we have just read. Uh, so, and whereas in the film, of course, she leaves with, with Livius. You couldn't kill Sophia Loren no. partway through the movie. Quite impossible, yes, quite impossible. The romance would end, there'd yeah, be... Yeah. Well, you'd no. start watching, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, so, yes, and they leave, and they have to leave, actually, because there's, again, echoes in that of Cincinnatus, the plough, the good old values of the Republic. I'm not going to accept this power because my principles are worth more to me than power and corruption. So he's the antithesis of Gibbon's reason for the decline. Do you think it's interesting that Livius doesn't... He's so shocked that she would consider organising a coup against Rome because he believes so solidly in Rome's values. Indeed. And she has to convince him about what's happening so that he will... Yes, she has to convince him that actually Rome's values are not embedded in Commodus, they are embedded in the institutions, and that that he is perverting those institutions. And there's the scene where she takes Marcus's writings and and asks someone to preserve them so that they can't be destroyed because his message is so important for civilization. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, in a way, that sums it up. I don't know how much... He's there's a message here from Antony Mann. There's one bit where a nameless senator, senator, and it's quite interesting that the senator who says it is nameless because I think it emphasizes that this is not about people, this is about the state. Uh, they can't he comes forward and says, How does an empire die? Does it collapse in one terrible moment? No, no, but there comes a time when its people no longer believe in it. So it's all about the corruption eating away from within. Um, and therefore, until there is just an empty shell which collapses in on itself. It's that old Gibbon message again. Which is interesting because I don't believe that anybody at the time genuinely felt this. They would, Even if they didn't like the period of time that was happening, and I know that eventually people did turn on Commodus, the Senate obviously mm. way sooner, there was no conceivable idea in the nation of Rome that their fall had begun 
and no. that they were going to continue to plummet. No, I mean, Roman writers are very vicious. I don't know enough about this, but Roman writers are very vicious and they make a lot of very large statements about corruption and the end of civic virtues. And there's a lot of declinism in Roman historical writing that, oh, the past was much better, now we're all rubbish. Um, Catalinus, for example, is a famous uh, historian. It's always going on about... But he seems to be the first guy to write about declinism in a way. And that may be a bit of a grand statement. But nonetheless, but certainly at the time, yes, absolutely, nobody said, oh, the Roman Empire's had it now. You know, I mean, that never happens. And it's quite rare, isn't it? They didn't have that. Gibbon is classically being teleological. He's looking at the end point and interpreting history in the, with the viewpoint of the end in mind. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, a classic thing people do. Uh, so I think that's it, really. You know, the, he has... There is clearly some sort of message here for America, probably, about, you know, what the empire is like, the importance of integration of, of peoples. So the film says, um, which is an echo of Tacitus, actually, wherever you live, whatever the colour of your skin, when peace is achieved, it will bring to all the supreme rights of Roman citizenship. No longer provinces or colonies, but a family of equal nations. That's what lies ahead. That's the message the man is saying, that the way we grow America and become strong is by making people all who come here be part of the American dream, the American polity. It's not about separation. And James Mason's to one of these... Is that voice? He is that voice. Not really, Livius. But also, Marcus, Marcus Aurelius is that voice. Yeah. Yes, Livius is more the voice of virtue. Also, I think Livius is more of the traditional character within the swords and sandals yes. narrative. Yeah. He's required to maintain the film's entertainment. Yeah. And provide a lot of the the notes and steps of the genre that people want when they go to the, yeah. the cinema. Absolutely, you've got to have him, haven't you? Whereas Timonides is is the one delivering. Yes. Yes, and it's very interesting they're making Greek, isn't it? Because it's very much that uh, typical view we have, or that has been embedded particularly in Gibbon and, and beyond, of the Greek as the clever, intelligent, you know, free thinker type, and the Roman as the rather administrative, military... You know, there's that typology that is classic, I think. It helps. It shows you that Marcus is different from everyone else who's kind of operating in the Senate because mm. he didn't see him as a Greek or a slave. Whereas when he goes to the Senate, they only remember him as what they see yes. him as. He, do, he doesn't exist, a, he's not important to them because he's an ex-slave, and which means he has no value. Well, he is the baddie, yeah. So the Commodus's mouthpiece, exactly, you're exactly right, says that. He says, you're an ex-slave, aren't you? And you they, oh, but they all chant Greek, yes, Greek, yeah. Greek. Yes. As, and he's the... So obviously, he's like, no, I'm a Roman. Yeah. I so he's choosing to be Absolutely. Roman. He identifies as a Roman, and he's advocating for more people to be welcomed as yeah. Romans. He is embodying exactly as you say. He's embodying that view, and that Senate argument is about that argument between this way is you're a slave, you're a Greek, you're not part of us. The separatist idea, and uh, Timonides and Marcus Aurelius' idea, we become you. We all share the same values. Um, and that is the battle. And, of course, in the Senate argument, Timonides wins, and then Commodus cheats and goes back. And he has all the most powerful scenes in the movie, the scene where he's surviving torture. Yes, that's a good because one. Because he doesn't want he doesn't want the German people to be slaughtered if the Romans hear him cry. Yeah. And he's trying to get them on his side to let yes. them know he wants to protect them, and he's willing to sacrifice himself. And his conflict over religion is really interesting. Yeah. His His death scene... And when he's trying to, you know, protect the people, you know, these are Romans, you yeah. don't need to fight us. Yeah. yeah, he has all the best moments, the ones yeah. you most remember. So I think that's it. I think the um, the super summary of all that in terms of historical accuracy is that man has clearly thought through very carefully what he's going to do. There are many historical echoes in there, but he has played fast and loose with quite a lot of events. But... It's done in a, for a reason. It is like it is on the level of a good historical novel, that the really good historical novels use history intelligently and change it intelligently. And I think he does that, that here with full recognisance of what he's doing. OK. I have a few points to 
raise about the history, which I think are yeah. interesting. Mainly because it's such a fascinating time. How can you not look at it? So, in the film, obviously, Marcus is, doesn't want Commodus to be king. And he wants to obviously put Livius in, who doesn't exist. But in reality, Commodus was a co-emperor. So they worked together for a number of years. And it's things like that which I yes. think are interesting to... Uh, it's interesting up. that that's a persistent trope, isn't it? So that's the same trope you get in Gladiator. Yeah, and Mar- looked Marcus being assassinated yes. in that, both films. Yes. That's definitely a historical... Uh, has historical basis, I think. But no one's proved it, though, have they? No, no, nobody's proved it. But then that, it's on the level of the I Claudius thing, where one uh, Roman writer relates the story that Livia poisoned all Augustus's children in order to make Tiberius come onto the throne, and there's no proof of that whatsoever, and a whole load don't. Robert Graves picks up on that and turns that into I Claudius. So there is some basis for it, Probably not right. In, in the film, they also suggest that Commodus is not Marcus's son and is yes. uh, the son of a gladiator. There is also... an illegitimate ruler. There is also a historian who writes that, I think it's Dio, who writes that that is a chronicler of the time who makes that suggestion. So it has historical basis. And it does have basis, but could it not be argued that this is people who can't believe that he is Marcus's son, that he mm. would... That they would fall so far in their own yeah. opinion, and they have to come up with narrative ways, maybe even during his reign to reduce his power, yeah. or after his reign to try and erase his image. Very probably, I think you're absolutely right. That very probably, that's the motivation of the chronicler of the time. So you're, I'm sure you're probably right in terms of the, the real history. Nonetheless, as far as making his cons- history is concerned, neatly illustrates the point, actually. What man, what man does is he pits the bit that helps him the, make the story, but he hasn't completely fabricated it. No, it's not completely fabricated. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that he's choosing to suggest that Commodus is illegitimate and that he takes the throne by um, murderous yeah. means rather than try and examine the fact that this was what was going to happen. Marcus wanted him to be emperor. Marcus made him co-emperor. This is the flow of history. Marcus wasn't prevented from maintaining the glory of Rome. Livius wasn't going to maintain it. I think uh, it's easy in this film to have these good characters and this bad character, and the bad people corrupt the nation, whereas I think it kind of was always going that way, and it's more of like an inevitable failure mm. of empires. Right. Well, there's so you're a you're a gibbon, gibbonite. Well, maybe. Um, I, That's the fascinating question: Is it was it ever inevitable that Rome would fall? So a few. Well, we talked about Marcus's death. In reality, most people believe that he died from the Antonine Plague, okay. which had obviously been decimating the population for right. a long time, and many people believe that the the plague is part of the reason that Rome never really quite recovers because right. they lost so many people. The, the armies were um, reduced. There was They weren't producing enough crops. Everything was failing. And the people who remained were being taxed harder than ever to try and recover, especially with Commodus like, draining yeah. the... There's, a, there's another theory about the fall of Rome by a chap called Donnelly, actually, which says that it's not Aurelius' time when that happens, but the same argument plays out in the reign of Justinian, Who's a sixth-century Roman emperor who reunite, who recreates the Roman Empire, re-invades Italy? But the plague of Justinian, he overextends himself. The plague of Justinian is a plague which goes all across Europe, absolutely wipes out the population, and you know the result actually is that Justinian overextends and causes the death of Rome in his view. Anyway, for me the best thing about the historical accuracy of the film is the depiction of Commodus. The more I watched the film, the more I realised that it's all the little details. They do get quite Hmm. correct about him, within reason. So, Commodus is obviously genuinely regarded as one of the worst emperors that they ever had. Some people like to look back and see him as a weak, a puppet to kind of corrupt senators, somebody who was um, paranoid and afraid of all these assassination attempts that were coming whereas other people see him as Caligula and Nero combined right. and squared. Um, he was sociopathic and... You wouldn't want to square Caligula, would you? No, he was... I mean, he was he was a bad dude. I... The more I... I have been having nightmares this week about <laughs> how much of a 
horrible person Commodus was. And that's knowing that... He was a, a baby compared to Caligula, though. I, I guess. Caligula, didn't he eat his child out of the womb of his wife? Okay, so... Who happened to be his sister? Okay, so yeah, so maybe Caligula's not... Caligula's a bad dude. I know, but <laughs> Commodus is definitely really bad yes. as well, and he mm-hmm. did a lot of terrible things, and it you just lose all faith in humanity when you learn what he's doing, and that's me knowing that a lot of the worst things he did are hidden mm. or not being told because they're just so nasty. So obviously he regularly murdered and purged everybody. Mm. Anyone who was an opponent of his was killed. Anybody who argued with him or if somebody came up and said, oh, I think they're plotting against you, killed. So he had these lists and he just kept slaughtering everybody and replacing them all with his followers. So the government lost all semblance of anything rational. Uh, he exiled and killed his own wife because she had an extramarital affair, even though he was sleeping with everybody and anyone every day. Classic. Um, yeah. Uh, he racked up huge amounts of debt and drove the empire into the ground. One of the ways he did this was he loved being a gladiator, which is obviously shown in the film. He loved being a gladiator. He loved fighting. He loved... Uh, having these private fights where he would murder the other person. He did that for fun. He loved slaughtering rare and exotic animals. And when he loved fighting people in the gladiator ring, he would always make sure that they had been poisoned, they had been wounded, they were given a lead sword so they couldn't fight properly or they couldn't do any damage. Then it was rigged for him to win. He would then bill Rome um, for his appearance in the right. in the ring so he would charge them ludicrous amounts of money for Me. him to fight yeah and he was just bankrupting the country just day after day and nobody wanted him particularly uh, people used to go and watch because they thought it was hilarious and the senators enjoyed laughing at him and the people enjoyed laughing at him and he gave them the games and this is the main thing like he loved the games mm. that vision from gladiator is real like he bought that <clears throat> to rome and like really elevated it and he loved watching them, and he didn't care about anything else. He didn't really want to be doing administrative work. He wanted to be fighting. But he would do things like get amputees brought into the ring so he could club them to death. And honestly, like, why? Yeah. What? I, I don't understand how that's entertainment, and I don't even think that... Oh, maybe people at the time did, I don't know. Um, he, he did really terrible things, and he loved um, appearing to be really strong and masculine and powerful and this led to his god complex where he told everyone that he was the reincarnation of hercules and if he's the reincarnation of the son of jupiter it means he's a god and if he's a god he doesn't have to listen to the senate because he's a divine monarch so he starts preaching this idea of divine monarchy and he decides he's going to rename rome after himself He's going to... He gave himself those 12 names. So he's going to call Rome a commode, was he? Or? Yeah, that's what I kept thinking. It was, what was it? Um, what, oh, what did he want to call it? I don't know. It was something like commode. Really? It was like... Um, <laughs> oh, I'd have to look it up. All right, Gazander. And so you know the bit in the film where um, he has that huge statue of himself? Yeah. And I think he has a quote... Uh, yeah, our new god Caesar. He starts to really see himself as this... And this is when he starts to go insane. He's like laughing and he's doing all this crazy stuff. They usher him in in that ceremony and he has 12 names. Each of those 12 names was going to be each of the 12 months of the calendar year. They were going to be changed to be his names. The city of Rome was going to be renamed. Everything was going to be altered. And a big section of Rome had burned down. It was going to be rebuilt in his honour. All the key sections of Rome were going to be named after him. And the entire future of Rome was going to be changed to be in line with Commodus as this godly figure and he carried around a giant club um like hercules did he also carried around the head of an ostrich that he slayed right it's a handy thing to have with you um to prove his prowess oh, I see. even though it was rigged right all along he was an absolute okay, so we're, piece not, of crap. we're not keen on commodus no but i think what's really good about this is although the film's changing history yeah a lot of these ideas about his obsessions and his interests and all the things that he was doing with his time and the way he operated and lived in Rome, it comes across in the right. film. They just can't give you the full breadth of his yeah. depravity because no one wants to watch that. Uh, you couldn't see that in the yeah. 60s anyway. I don't even know if you could now. And it would kind of detract. Like, we get yeah. the message. He's yeah. the villain of the piece and he works yeah, they do. really, really well when he's doing it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't really think I have anything more to say. Obviously, there's... A ton of history out there, and I think you should uh, look into all of it. 
the film is a little bit um, liberal in how it uses history, but I think as we've decided, its purpose gives it value. Yeah. And it's created characters and it's altered narratives for Lucilla and a few of the others are vital in just driving the the swords and sandals epic. Yeah. Great. The film has to be entertaining. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so should we mark it? Should we go for qualities of film? Yeah, I was I was thinking a five. Gosh, you've gone quite low. That's reasonably mean. Because it's a little bit bloated. I mean the word bloat. Yeah, it does. Okay, I mean, well, it's, I it's would three go... hours long, and that is quite. Yeah, indeed. That's a lot of unnecessary. I think stuff I'd probably give six, but we, so we're asking, we are okay, about I, details here, aren't we? Yeah, I could, I could you know, if I could go to a six, that'd be fine. Okay, all right. So historical, tricky one to mark, isn't it? With history, I was thinking maybe a six, although I could drop to a five, because I feel like it captures the time really well in terms yeah. of the sets, the physical recreation of the place. That works really well. Let's go for a six. Let's be generous. I think it's, yeah, it's like, maybe it's like, but let's go for that. Yeah. And because we feel it's intelligent in the way that it is perverting the course of justice, the uh, course of history. Although I think there could be people out there who view almost yeah. everything about this film as entirely inaccurate. It's true. You could get, you could hammer it a lot more, couldn't you? Like, you really could. I know a lot of people have. Yes. Right. But I see a lot of, you can clearly tell that they're aware of the history and if they're yeah. changing it, they know what's happened, they're changing it. But is that purpose. making it any better? I, I mean, you're aware of the history and you're changing it in an intelligent way. Does that make it any better that you're being so inaccurate? Isn't that worse? Uh, maybe we ought to go lower than six. Okay, uh, what, five? Let's go five. Should we even go four? No, five. We'll go five. Nobody else is listening to us. Okay, anyway. Nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. Right, okay, that's brilliant. We had fun though, didn't we? Really enjoyed it. Would you recommend it? History. Yeah, I'd absolutely recommend it. Especially since it led me into reading a whole load about the historiography and what actually happened, which is great. Does it feel different to the other Swords and Sandals films that you've seen? I wouldn't say it particularly does, actually. I think I only really uncovered the difference as I began to read and think about it. Um, so it doesn't feel any more um, powerful or intelligent? I think you had to think about it. For I think if I was watching it on a casual Sunday afternoon, which is probably how I first watched it, watched it um, I would just see it as a Swords and Sandal epic. And do you think it, it missed its purpose as a Swords and Sandals epic by getting too involved in giving us this history lesson? Yeah, I think that does reduce its excitement as a as a spectacle. Oh, and the last point. I really don't like that it opens and closes with the idea that it's going to tell us the true history of the right. fall of the Roman Empire with that like narrator. Right. Interesting, because I suppose what he's referring to is this. He's giving you the real reason... Even whether the events have been changed a little bit, but he's giving you the, the guts is what is the point. Yeah. I, yeah, I would really recommend it. For so you know, we've listed all yeah. the reasons. I think one of the main ones is that it. I don't think it is, um, aspires to a happy ending. No, which is yes, which is. Well, I don't like that because I like Richard Curtis. But yes, I take your point. But that's value. Yeah, it wants us to take yeah. something from it. Okay, uh, so let's do the roundup. Wolf and David's roundup. They're the rootness, tootness cowboys in the wild, wild west. Wolf and David's roundup. The whole immortal beloved thing was rather unfortunate, let's be honest. Because there is clearly quite a lot of love for this movie, and certainly, of course, of Beethoven's sublime music and the way the film allowed that music to be heard. So, Right from the start, I had to persuade Tim not to listen to the podcast, which is unusual. In eight years or so of podcasting, I can't quite remember doing that. Normally, it's all about whining at people to write reviews, become members, oh please, oh please, oh please, that sort of thing. Having seen the chat, Pauline was actually scared to rewatch the movie. What have we done? However, most of the people who commented essentially told us to get a life. Mike put the counter-argument neatly talking about how the music depicts Ludwig's loss of hearing really well and revels in the music at the same time. Difficult man to love he might be, but as Mandy put it, would we trade his music for a better man? And from a personal point of view, I have to agree with the sentiment of Johanna Rice in the movie that the world would be a much poorer place without the music he brought. So we can all agree on that. There was quite a bit of disagreement about Gary Oldman's performance. Helen was on our side, but Jonathan was very impressed. And also gave a great-looking recommendation for a BBC film of 2003 called Eroica. I may do it for a future episode to try and make up for things. 
I only watched it a few minutes on YouTube and worry, therefore, that I may have broken more copyright laws than I've eaten warm buns. And I've eaten a lot of warm buns. But in just a few minutes, I already felt in more capable hands than in the film. Peter also suggested that the film was worth watching for its music. There were folks that agreed with us, though. David Paul's fury that we made him watch it made me laugh, actually, quite a lot. Sorry about the marriage, David. In terms of the numbers, the percentage of you who loved it was pretty low, I have to say, at 42%, but equally not many of you rejected it either. So, let me finish with Tina, Steve and Essa that, whatever the movie was like, Beethoven's music is the best. Great. Very good. Okay. And so, brilliant. The next one we are doing is mine. And what is mine next time? Wolf. It's oh, Bajero Mastani. I, I always pronounce it Bajero Mastani. Uh, the next one we're doing is Bajero Mastani. Oh, and we'll tell you more about that next time. Excellent. Thanks for listening, everybody. Are you not entertained? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.